Our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sapper, the world's leading augmented reality platform and creative studio. With over 11 years of experience working with the world's biggest brands through Zapper Creative Studio. Zapper also has an award-winning web AR platform, Zapworks, that lets you create your own mobile AR magic. Finally, check out their Zap Box, the most affordable mixed reality headset on the planet. Start creating AR over at zap.works or talk to them about your next AR project at zapper.com. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charlie Fink. It's Friday, April 7th, 2023, and it's This Week in XR. And for the first time in 143 episodes, I am alone. Fortunately, I have some great guests coming in. Weilei Dai, the founder of Marvel Technologies, and now the co-founder and chairman uh, of a company called Meet Kai. Meet Kai is a browser-based uh, metaverse uh, that uses AI uh, to do world building, and it's got a bunch of other great features. Uh, she co-founded the company with James Kaplan, a recent, recent Harvey Mudd graduate and certified genius. Ted is at the Masters, walking around being a big mocker. I have to say, he does a great job of giving me FOMO pretty much every week. Roni, it's the Jewish holidays, uh, Passover to be exact. So Roni is unavailable to us today as well. So let me give you some top line on the news, and then we'll get to our guests. Uh, some fundraising this week by uh, two companies making um, micro displays, Mojo Vision pivoting away from AR contact lenses, uh, which in the end were too expensive and didn't have any mass market potential, although they were helping the partially sighted. They've used the micro LED technology to essentially pivot. They have the new CEO and a new plan. So uh, good luck to them. Uh, there's another AR display technology, uh, Ocumented, maybe close. They closed $20 million Series A led by Sharp Devices Europe. Uh, which is one of the continent's leading uh, electronic display manufacturer. They use a technology called MEMS uh, that has something to do with proprietary mirrors and electronics and a software stack to power AR glasses. So a lot of people paying attention to AR, Psychic VR, uh, VR the company that uh, has an app called Styly, a Japanese company just raised almost four million dollars, uh, bringing their total funding to almost $20 million. Uh, they have a real-world metaverse platform. It sounds a little bit similar to Niantic Lightship. Uh, also in the news, VR Chat developing a um, mobile app, uh, long overdue. We talked about Second Life uh, last week or the week after. Um, more about my raving about uh, Fatboy Slim and... Um, a virtual try-on for Tommy Hilfiger that was created by Zero Ten in Europe that could potentially disrupt, uh, could potentially disrupt the retail experience or at least greatly augment it. Sony is introducing at NAB next week a new generation spatial reality display, so they'll be competing with Leia and Looking Glass. Oh wait, Ted, Ted has entered. The waiting room so let's let him in and maybe he'll tell us about the masters and his mastery of the universe there he is hey. in a car ted you're live i'm recording the show without you 
For the first Excellent. time in 143 episodes, I have soloed the news without you. Let me tell you something. I am at a place where uh, technology is a long lost art that has never hit this golf tournament. And it is, <laughs> it is a phenomenal experience because I don't know if you, if you track or know, I, I presume like, you know, and some of the listeners that are golf fans know Augusta is the one place they do not allow any cell phones, cellular technology on the course at all for any patron Anybody to turn off your phone, airplane mode. No, 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 not turn off your phone. You have to leave your phone in your car or check your phone um, at a phone check place. You literally cannot be on the course or anyone on the course, whether you're staff working. Well, you can understand this though. It's phenomenal. You know, as some like you and me, we're obviously technically, you know, the phone is is implanted in us. We exactly and and it is such a an amazing experience when you get a chance to just remove it from your physical body for a couple of days um, and be in the moment. And you know, I've been to a lot of other golf tournaments because of the parent company that I work for on CBS. So I'm doing a lot of sports innovation stuff. And this is you know going to a lot of golf tournaments and watching people watch the tournament through their phone lens, capturing the the pictures of the golfers because you know golf is one of those sports you're cl- very close proximity to the athletes right mm-hmm. very very different than most other sports and people feel like they want to capture that moment but then you're like what are you going to do with that like you know maybe you'll show it to your friend but you probably won't also the photographs that yourself. the professional guys are taking around you are oh, much way better. better right <laughs> way better and you know we've got 4k coverage of the whole thing well right? that's so funny so because that's what people do right you, you go to a big football game especially a night game and you see the cameras yeah. going off like they're at a big concert right <laughs> yeah and i get it i get the, the the cultural stuff i mean obviously we're involved in it but you know as i've been here for the last couple of days i thought you know i should start like a little movement to see how many um uh, professional golf tournaments you could ban cell phones from because it is such a pure experience you can also see how, how a cell phone you know going off or or buzzing with even just buzzing with a message could be distracting to a, a player of, you know, over a critical yeah. putt Absolutely. And there's no do-overs. Yeah. And Augusta has, you know, the most aware fans, the most uh, sort of gentle and, and smart fans. It costs costs a small fortune just to walk around that course. Absolutely. Yeah. So the people who are there really want to be there. Yeah. They limit the capacity. um, And it's just a remarkable experience. It's steeped in history. So are you going to be there all four days? No, I'm here just for to the first two days, and then uh, and then I head back to my so my somewhat real life. <laughs> so it's I ran, I ran actually, through the news. Uh, I, I got, see James I got the first couple of days good days uh, because Sorry. the weather is coming in and it's going to be uh, bad storms the last two days of Augusta. Oh, really? Year, so it's going to be an interesting tournament. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but well, already it's Sorry. turned pretty dramatic. At least the news has. Sounds like there's uh, yeah. a lot of guys jostling around the top of the leaderboard. So I was going to say, I went through the news. Uh, I see James is in the waiting room. We'll wait for Waylay before we bring them in. Uh, Waylay um, is the uh, founder of Marvell Technologies. Uh, Marvell, as you know, is a, uh, Waylay Dai is her name. Uh, she's a, a computer scientist engineer out of UC Berkeley. Uh, she built that company over 20 years, took it public, 
uh, is uh, one of the wealthiest women in the world. She's backing this company, Meet Kai, and more than backing it, she's quite actively involved yeah. with it. The CEO is kind of a genius, uh, and she's providing the business know-how for his um, engineering skills. So they're working on, as I think I told you in an email, a browser-based metaverse that can be activated with AI. So uh, we're going to hear a lot about this this afternoon. This is, of course, we've known the metaverse is headed in this direction, right? Getting right. rid of the friction of apps, uh, you know, being able to be ubiquitous in the air all around us. So it'll be good conversation with them. One thing I, I wrote about in the column, and I'm interested in your perspective is the emergence of these screen extenders like mm. the Rokit Air and the Enreal Air, which I guess they're sunsetting or at least uh, soft pedaling the Enreal Light spatial computing glasses. And they're creating the Enreal Air, which is a screen extender, right? You plug it into yeah. your smartphone and you get a 200 inch screen. And, and this is apparently happening. Uh, you know, these devices are under $500 and yeah they really do produce a much more powerful experience than you can have on your smartphone for gaming or media consumption. And they're semi-translucent, right? So you could wear them in public and still have awareness of the physical world around you, which is a lot of the objection uh, objections to the pass-through, uh, you know, typical pass-through AR. So um, do, you, do you share my uh, conviction that these are going to be the way that uh, glasses start to become part of mobile? I do with, with certain, let's call them positive critiques about where we sit today. Uh, so just like you, I have seven different pairs of these things from multiple manufacturers. Uh, most of them with today's technology are um, connected via a wire, a USB-C yeah. wire from the smartphone, Android typ typically, some with an adapter are working uh, with iOS. And if Not really. Connected to an <laughs> iPad, because, yeah, because iPad has USB-C, so yeah. it's actually, you can get direct connect to an iPad. Uh, so I've been using them and testing them in various environments. And my biggest challenge, you know, I've talked about this uh, from time to time, is not the technology, the not the birdbath optics, which work, not the clarity, which is, you know, 1080p on uh, on both eyes. Yeah, okay, um, not great. Yeah, and um, and the, um, the, 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 the flip side of this, sorry, I just got another phone call. So just my, my brain was <laughs> lost for a second there. Um, the, um, the, the challenge that I have with this, which you and I have talked about, is what I just refer to more than anything as fit and finish, right? Is that I've taken these things on airplanes uh, quite a bit because I'm trying to get this experience where I can actually have a theater in my seat, right? So I can yeah. connect it to my phone or my iPad and I can bring up a very, very large, pretty high fidelity image so it's not the image that's the problem. And it's not even the comfort of the glasses themselves that's the problem. It's just the wearability of them, the design of the temples, the design of the nose bridge, the design that on an airplane, you really want to wear large over-the-ear headphones, right? Like Bose noise-canceling headphones. Yeah. And you can't because- The sound the bleed is too, too great. Yeah, it's just problematic. So I try and I sort of monkey around with it, uh, but ultimately the best use cases for it um, the fit and finish is not there. The people haven't really worked on the ergonomics. I think it, it, uh -huh. it, the issue with it being wired is a big one. They're still a little heavy. They still yeah. don't look like real glasses. I think they're trying to bring maybe next year for to the Ray-Ban story, some kind of a display inside of them, which would... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm not quite sure. I mean, I saw the reference design for the Vuzix, 
uh, one was really quite mm -hmm. elegant. It can do Bluetooth. So I think by the end of the year, we'll start to see some really substantial. This is going to evolve very, very quickly. Um, you know, yeah. TCL. And, and the other thing that I have, a, the other thing I have a bit of a, a, a critique on is that until they're really, really ready to be glasses that are light enough that will actually act and function like glasses, why do we keep trying to make them look like glasses? You know, they, they should be more visors like the HoloLens got the HoloLens and the HoloLens 2 got so much right and so much wrong. Like the, the sort of like in the intersection of a lot right, put the whole thing on your head, no wire, no, no, you know, fidgety stuff to hang, like the magic leap. The optics are really interesting and great, but you still got this vestige of another age, like hanging on your yeah. the side of your pocket. Um, you got to fix all that, right? And the the idea of the visor is really smart, but then they had all that real estate, but then they kept their field of view so small that um it's like it doesn't doesn't jive to me. There's there's still a lot of work to be done. So let, you know, let me bring in James from the waiting room. He may be with right. Waylay. Would okay. not be surprised. James Kaplan of Meet Kai. Great to see hey, you. Charlie. We Great we don't have Charlie. we don't have Waylay here, so we can go right into uh, meet Kai and learn a bit, little bit about it. I've already introduced you and um, Wele, and so uh, let's just jump right in. What is Meet Kai? Thanks, Charlie. So Meet Kai, we consider ourselves to be kind of at the hybrid of metaverse and AI, which is I know pretty buzzwordy to say these days. But you know, our take on it is that the problem with the metaverse and sort of content and XR in general, I think previously, has been that cost to develop is so high. And when you have such a high cost to develop the content, then, you know, you have this problem where for someone to justify that investment, there has to be enough users to pay it off. But you have that chicken and egg problem right now with things like XR, where there aren't enough users yet to make those types of big investments worthwhile. So our mission has really been that if we can figure out ways to sort of brush down that cost of building out content, then naturally there will be enough content to attract enough users. And we'll finally have sort of the flywheel going for the metaverse to take off. Since the metaverse, to me at least, is not like a single company building it. It's this idea of all these different things being built. And fundamentally at the core of that is content. So sort of our take on it has been, and we've worked on this for quite a while now, is how can we leverage AI to sort of optimize the different parts of the content creation process as much as possible. And what does, so, so just, sorry, go ahead, Ted. Right, I was gonna, would, would, would you say that you're taking the same approach or similar approach without maybe the AI component that a Squarespace did um, a generation exactly. ago to sort of democratize the idea of using these kinds of spaces and simplify the use case and the work case and the build case for a lot of users? And that obviously grew to a very successful company. So I'm curious if that's your, your philosophy. Exactly. So the usual pitch I give is that if you're a restaurant and want to build a great website these days, it's like anyone can do it. And you can have reservations, you can have a CRM, a newsletter, take out the, it's just, and no one thinks, okay, I got to hire, you know, a firm to work on this for me anymore. That was how it was done. You know, I actually started off doing WordPress templates and implementation, you know, 15 some years ago. These days, no one would think of that as like, okay, I got to go find someone to build it. On the other hand, if you look at people these days that want to build an app, right? It's an extremely expensive process. Um, and they have to go hire a firm. And then building out something closer to a game or sort of 3D content is like even worse than an app in terms of cost. So we're trying to sort of be the Squarespace or Shopify or Wix or Webflow, right. um, but sort of geared for that 3D side 
and then going a level beyond, you know, just the space and trying to find ways to make it interactive. Because I think that's kind of been one of the limits so far. And I think for your point about Squarespace is that Squarespace at the start was sort of building informational sites, but they've kind of gone beyond that in the sense of like now to support e-commerce, you know, newsletters, all these different types of things to make it like a real offering. How does the AI work exactly, right? So at, is this like I use AI voice to text, I mean, uh, voice to image to create my 3D world? So most of our tooling right now is largely internal of like different things that we built at different stages of the creation process. And what we've been kind of been doing is we've been building out a few sort of worlds for different customers and using that to refine the technology. You know, we find that... Um, we aren't planning ourselves to go directly in the text asset phase, since I think that's sort of a very crowded area. Um, however, I think there's a large element that's missing at the moment publicly of like, let's say you have that asset, right? That someone created. It turns out that there's a very hard process to go from some asset into, okay, now I have a world where I can drive around the car. Like that's sort of like this, where we focus on. And that means asset optimization, you know, code generation, all those different types of things. And then the flip side of that is that like once that tooling is polished off enough, we're planning on sort of letting people use it themselves outside of the company um, to build it, like build their own spaces, build their own worlds. Other side of the, you know, there's which a, I would, go ahead. I was just gonna say there's a really interesting trend and sort of buzzwords around the idea of like, if you're gonna frame up a job for the near future, one of those jobs, like, you know, in like, let's say you're at a bar and you're talking to your buddy and he's got a new job. Like, what's your job? It's like, well, I know how to talk to AI. What do you yes. mean? I'm I'm really good. I built up a skill at learning how to prompt. You're talking AI about prompt to, engineering, which is yeah, a yeah, yeah, prompt engineering right? <laughs> to deliver the 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 to deliver the results that I want. And I've gotten, you know, I'm I'm theorizing, I'm making up a personal that person that you know is out there in the world. Um, I'm the person that is really good at doing this, at prompting the AI to deliver this goal set very cleanly, very effectively with very little human interaction. Um, are you sort of angling into that believability or that philosophy that well, at some point people will get so good at using your tool that they'll be able to build anything with three or four prompts? So what we've been looking at is that I think, you know, prompt engineering to me is kind of like, you know, cobalt and like sort of like the early levels of like languages. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, um, it's not gonna Like, I think a lot of things about prompt engineering, I think at least as a practitioner in the field, um, that's going to be sort of the output. You know, we can call it, I mean, eventually it's going to be some sort of like assembly equivalent, right? You know, you're writing code in assembly and then deploying that to a platform, right? You're writing it in some higher level description. So I think there's going to be an entire sort of stack built around that. And mm -hmm. largely, you know, we've done a number of prototypes and sort of product demos. And what we found is that people prefer like dropdowns and things like that to like select a style. And I think a lot of things like that are gonna be how people use AI in the future is like upload an image that they like, kind of describe what they would like in their new image, then maybe pick a few drop downs between, okay, this I want it to be a person, I want it to be an object, and you know, internal systems will be used to go from sort of the GUI to a prompt that the AI can actually interact with. Um, yeah. It's really early days and it's, you know, one of those things where the field is kind of shifting every few days, um, even sometimes multiple times a day. 
you know, someone will publish a paper in the morning and it'll be a different paper in the night. And then a blog post or someone on Twitter will find some issue with it. And the next day it's all over again. Um, you know, I have to tell you, every time I hear somebody say it's really early days, I'm like, I, I don't think so, man. I think, you know, it was early days like two months ago. And now that little infant has turned into a rambunctious toddler. And in the next five minutes, he's going to be a teenager uh, that's going to get in all kinds of trouble. And that's kind of my view of AI is everything. Oh, super early days, super early days. I don't think so. I think the, these days are very numbered in the early I don't days. Think, I don't think the nev negative consequences have yet uh, manifested themselves <laughs> at scale, um, but yes. they will. They oh, were, oh I, I mean, as soon as people start hooking it up to more platforms, I mean, I already see demos of like, oh, I hooked up GPT-4 to start, you know, giving advice on trading stocks on Twitter. And it's like, yep. there's just one step removed from that of like scamming people out of money for an MLM yep. scheme. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where that will come about. Um, you know, to me, I think one of the reasons why we started off on this entire AI and metaverse thing back in... 2021 after doing stuff in the voice assistant world um, was that a lot of the ways people interact with AI, um, at least previously, have been pretty boring for a user. And what ChatGPT, I think, showed was by having just a very simple chat interface turned out like that, because GPT had been around, you know, GPT-3 had been around for basically a year before ChatGPT came about. And just by providing it in a clean enough interface to people that like random people could just log in and start like saying, you know, write me a recommendation letter for, I don't know, this person or give me a cover letter for this job. Um, sort of allowed people to see the potential. And to me, the next step of that largely is gonna be how do we go beyond chat into sort of like, I don't wanna say like, let's have a bunch of robots in the world um, powered by GPT. Cause I think that's how we get to things come a lot as Charlie was saying, things get a lot closer to like Skynet every week if the moment we start having robots with you know physical capabilities but yeah the phrase the phrase i use all the time is what could possibly go wrong exactly. <laughs> this, is the, this is the phrase of the of the year what we could go wrong so james talk to me about um sort of creator economies and incentives and how the world's people build on your platform are going to connect to the rest of the metaverse and what their motivation is going to be for building on sure. that platform as opposed to other, others? So, you know, our thesis at the start on the content piece comes back to that stage of monetization. Since I think without that monetization element, you're really missing sort of a key component around like that flywheel. And, you know, creator economy is one of the primary ways we can see that happening in the near term. In the same way, not to use an example like this, because not my favorite thing, but like influencers, right? Influencers at the start was not a profession that like had any like money behind it. You just like posted YouTube review. Like, you just were like a person who was like overly social. Um, but then all these things start coming out about, okay, brands were interested in sponsorships. People were launching their own products. Um, so there became this monetization element to it. And then platforms like Instagram went to like the moon. Um, I see for creator economy in the metaverse to be largely a similar concept of if you give people these worlds, there have to be some types of things for people to be doing in them to generate mm -hmm. revenue. Um, you know, the worlds that we've launched so far, um, largely ads is going to be kind of the revenue model, similar to how YouTube does it, where instead of it, be, like, that's kind of, I would always say the phase one of any type of creator platform, where a revenue share with ads is the easiest way to get from like zero to one. 
where you know you build something, people spend time in it. Yeah, but ads, ads suggest that there's scale. That's my point. So it's it's the first phase, right? Like it's you know the penny, it's to get the first dollar, but it's not the first to get the next ten thousand, hundred thousand. Um, what we're looking at doing right now is you know we're not starting with the creators yet, uh, like the individual level, because I think you do need a bit of that scale for discovery. Um, our kind of goal at a high level, sort of jumping around between your questions, is that you know for metaverse interconnectivity, the way we see that happening is through the browser. Um, like to me, it's a no-brainer. One hundred percent. the future, like it's it's just there, there's no discussion. I would I would say like, I mean, I'm going to the Open Metaverse Summit, I guess, in Canada next month, and it's like, I think anyone who's saying anything about how we connect Unity and Unreal is so far missing the mark on what the metaverse could be with the browser mm. that it's um, kind of like they're head in the sand. But to the point of the, how they connect, um, it's, you know, the way you get scale in my mind and is sort of through discoverability and, you know, having it be easy for people to find the content. So what we're trying to do is that, you know, make all these things indexable in Google so that anyone can be searching Google in the same way that you found websites mm. in the past, you'd be finding like different areas of different worlds. Um, and so, then that sort so, of starts building the ads. So James, let's back up a step for our, for our listeners. Um, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're getting into a lot of the pieces of what you're working on and how you're working on it, which is fascinating. Uh, but I think it's always important to just level set yeah. a little bit, uh, learn a little bit about the stage your company's at. It has some sure. really interesting backing and foundation with Marvell, which is an interesting organization in and of itself, very successful um, in terms of its delivery over the last generations of uh, broadcast chips and the internet and all. So, so maybe give us a, a little uh, background on how big the company is, who's behind sure. it, the kind so, of funding it's got, you know, where you're headed with all that. We're a fairly unique company in that my co-founder um, previously founded Marvell, um, which sort of gives us, uh, I would say, a very strong foundation in terms of the ability to self-finance and also the connections okay. that are needed in terms of being able to reach certain companies that would otherwise not be achievable to reach from sort of a small scale, uh, like a startup. And what it kind of has afforded us the ability to do is spend a lot of time in R&D without having to get like an MVP out of the door. And the stage that we're at at the moment is, Charlie was actually one of the first people we talked to after we came out of Stealth at CES this year, as mm -hmm. like we're trying to sort of, you know, find these initial companies to work with that have IP. You know, right now we're about 50 people. Um, we've raised a little over 20 million since inception, but again, largely self-financed um, of that 20 plus million. And right. Well, and, you know, and what self-financing allows is a lot of iteration without sort of the pesky meddling of people trying to turn your turn you into a business model before you're ready to be a business model. Um, I had a, a version of that with the the camera that I was involved in very early on to help build because it was it was essentially funded by a, by a, a billionaire who was very successful. Red camera, his, maybe uh, you've heard of it, James. Previous yes. business, and it was fascinating because you know we were able to stay on mission, stay on point, really effectively, and I think that's actually one of the reasons we were successful uh, is we didn't have so many distractions. So the idea of a company like yours having minimal distractions and a focus on a deliverable, um, I think a lot of people can learn from that. I think I, we learned from it, I learned from it, and I think a lot of people can learn from it. So it's great. I think it's, it's very fortunate in that typically the way one has to do that is through bootstrapping. Um, 
like that was typically how you would have to do it because you don't have the, the very great fortune of having sort of an internal bankroll. Um, but I would say that, as you said, that was very core to how we were able to get to where we are. If we had to sort of ship stuff two years ago, uh, we would not be ready. Um, not even close. And, you know, where we are right now is just, you know, we're sort of starting to open up to the idea of scaling as a company. Since with 50 people, you can only do so much. Um, especially, I mean, I would say of those 50 people, um, maybe four people are not engineering or, you know, right. technical artists. <clears throat> like, so that was like, very similar. Somebody has to buy health insurance. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Our, our org in the early days was very much like that. It was almost all engineers and a couple of us crazy non-engineers that would ask the questions of, wouldn't it be fun if we could build this? <laughs> and then all the engineers would go, super good idea, Ted but you don't actually have to build it. So you go wait in the corner and we'll tell you when it's so, ready. So <laughs> uh, before we run out of time, James, I thought that conversation we had in Las Vegas included um, Waylay. First of all, Waylay, I'm sorry she didn't join us. She's a very intense yeah. person. Uh, so, and when you're with her, you're like, oh, this this person is important. Uh, and um, <laughs> and I guess, you know, being a billionaire is pretty easy to feel that way. Uh, but James, this is your first rodeo. And somehow you and Wele got connected when really you were young. So can you tell us the story of how that all sure. unfolded and how this partnership came about? Because it is quite well, extraordinary. This sounds like a good story. Yes. I'm very excited to hear this yes, story. Yes. So um, actually, I first met Wele uh, about five years before we started this company. Um, at that point, my mom knew her and my mom is one of her best friends. So my mom has known her for a while and I was still in college at that point. And, you know, I talked to her a number of times about sort of why I like coding and all these types of things. And at that point, I was a junior in school and I actually at Harvey ended up dropping Mudd. out of college. At Harvey Mudd, yes. And I ended up dropping Which out Which is nerd, nerd central in Southern California. Along Absolutely. With <laughs> it, it was a culture, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I ended up dropping out of school after my junior year and I actually went into finance. Um, you know, I had sort of had dual interests in school of pretty heavy programming and uh, quantitative trading. And finance was kind of the natural thing to me to do. Um, so we started, I started a small prop shop. Um, fortunately, found um, another billionaire to bankroll me um, through convincing <laughs> them that it would succeed. Um, and, you know, I ran that for about four years. But at the end of that, you know, Whaley had always been convincing me, like, you know, do something that's actually interesting beyond just, you know, uh, finance, where finance is extraordinarily interesting if you like programming and extraordinarily rewarding from a monetary perspective. And at least to me, extraordinarily unrewarding from like a happiness, good for the world, interesting things you're building perspective. And, mm -hmm. you know, effectively in 2018, the summer, um, I said, yes, let's do it. And we ended up starting the company with the only spec in mind being can we use AI to build interesting products? We hadn't decided what product we were going to build yet. We hadn't decided like what we were doing, but I had been using AI um, for trading for a number of years um, or things resembling AI, at least I should say. Um, and it was like, okay, that was successful. So maybe we can build up a team, build up sort of like, you know, a lot of experiments in R&D to get to a stage where um, we're not just doing you know, use AI to make life better, as she effectively said at the start, um, but like actually having a use case in mind. So that was kind of the, you know, background of how we kind of 
moved and swerved around to be where we are today. Um, and, you know, I'm extraordinarily fortunate that she was um, trusting me enough to believe in me of just saying like, okay, let's do an AI thing as opposed to saying like, let's have an MVP that we, you know, build in three months and then have a so, demo day. And so that was 2018 when you started the company. Yes. And yes. of course, in those days, AI was called machine learning, right? Deep learning. Deep learning. <laughs> deep learning. So how did you train it? So the deep learning we originally did actually was all around um, a voice assistant. The initial product that we worked on, it's actually launched and has a decent amount of success as a B2B product with about 60, 70 million users um, through B2B partnerships. But the original product we launched was a voice assistant. And sort of our thesis back then was the missing link in voice assistance was not actually the speech recognition or text-to-speech or anything like that, but it was in the search engine where a lot of search engines were kind of built with like previous tech. So what we did back then was kind of like, see, could we make sort of a minimum viable search engine and start finding these B2B relationships to get user data? Because deep learning, you know, especially in 2018, was all about how do you get your data, right? Because otherwise you don't have data, you don't have a model. These models were huge amounts of data to train. So we ended up having, and that was sort of the fortune of having Whaley have connections with a lot of, you know, companies in the tech space that would have needs for like different things that would, as part of those agreements, um, allow us to train our models to be better. So it it sounds like you and Whaley have very little to no concern about what I would refer to, Charlie would refer to as the ghost town effect of the metaverse, that there's a lot of stuff being built and there's not a lot of people engaging. And there's not a lot of people dancing around oh. these things. And to this bigger point of asking this open question of, does everything really need to have an advanced three-dimensional, either photorealistic or oh. highly stylized version to go in? Why is 2D such a bad thing? Um, it's so, an interesting question to answer. So I'm presuming you have some, some good answers about that. Yes. Or good so actually, that. We've, in, we've invested into a company actually in the 2D game engine space. Um, we've done a number of investments as a company and sort of mm. through Waylee's extended network into different companies building things. Because actually one of our fundamental thesis is that 2D is not going anywhere. And if you look at the success of platforms like itch.io, like especially on the creator side of like Gen Z likes creating content and 2D content is extremely achievable to create. And tools like Midjourney are only going to like raise that to infinity. And to me, the ghost town effect, actually that's probably one of my biggest worries. But the only way I see that being solved is through content. Because like, if you imagine TikTok where no one posted, it would be a joke. But by having enough content, they were able to have recommendation algorithms. And that's kind of our plan with sort of our background and search and recommendation systems is like, we need to get all this content out in the browser. We need to index all the other content that people are creating in different areas and then effectively drive whatever user base there is around. And I mean, of course, there's interesting things you can talk about with like NPCs and com virtual companions and stuff like that. But at least in the near term, like we're all, we have those projects, we have R&D there. It's probably where we have about 20 people working um, at the mm -hmm. moment. But like largely, I think it's a matter of like 2D content is going to be how you get, you know, 60% of content, I would say. 30% of content will probably be, um, you know, 3D sort of high end. And then that there'll probably be about 10% of sort of like pure, um, like just watching a video with friends, like not actually. Like that's a very healthy content. attitude. I think that's a very healthy attitude. Smart. Otherwise, I mean, the metaverse right now is 
I mean, I was saying early days of AI, I don't know if it's early days to toddler metaverse right now, who knows what days it's in, because I feel like it's been through like six cycles already, even in the past two years. Um, I think the detangling of the metaverse with crypto, though, is one of the fundamental things to sort of ease that ghost town, because previously there was this concept. Well, of web, web three and crypto were only part of the metaverse from the point of people view of people involved with web three and crypto. Yes. I mean, I, I call that the unsettled business of the metaverse. I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm the assumption that they're right is not correct either. Um, you know, and that's, so there's also an implicit uh, assumption that people will prefer to navigate the internet the way they navigate Fortnite. And I actually don't think we're getting rid of hyperlinks any anytime soon. So, um, you know, another approach is is needed as these worlds start to blend together yeah i don't think i've ever seen i don't think i've ever seen a stronger echo effect echo chamber effect uh mentality than web3 and metaverse i think in my you know not young life anymore i've seen a lot of things where a lot of people are building something for themselves and not understanding how to find a market for it uh this is maybe the strongest uh effect of that i've seen yeah, and again, I don't want to start war with Web three people. It there is a use for that technology. Absolutely, there's a use. A lot yeah. of use. You know, this idea that you're carrying your identity in your browser makes a lot of sense. And it doesn't doesn't res reside on and this universal sign in idea that Web three is really good for uh, is a valid and really powerful yes. idea. But yeah. its extension into everything is certainly premature uh, yes. and and not really, you know, workable. I mean, it's sort of like calling a timeout on AI. Sure, you call a timeout on AI. <laughs> yeah, good luck I'm going to try and make up some lost ground. So, yeah. Um, yeah, James, yeah. as we reach sort of the end of our time together today, um, what's the kind of parting shot you want our listeners and other people to know about Meet Kai as you come out of stealth and, and you look for partnerships and content creators? Yeah, so right now what we're doing as a company is working with anyone and everyone that has what we would consider interesting content and IP that people would be attracted to. And, you know, we're doing a lot of different ways, sort of a lot of different types of engagements. Um, BitNile, our world, first world that went live March 1st, um, the Drone Racing League, we're launching World with them actually this coming weekend on April 8th. And, you know, we're looking and sort of setting up many different partnerships and, you know, anyone who has anything interested that they think people will be interested in, um, we want to work with you as we build out our sort of creator tools so that eventually people like them will be able to create it themselves. But in sort of that near term, we're helping do that creation process. And, you know, I think that's yeah, the other side of things I would say is anyone building anything in their browser I, you know, that is my biggest goal right now in terms of like ecosystem of like, we've invested very heavily both on the tech side, open source and sort of companies and sponsorships of like anyone building content for the browser. So I think that's sort of the key to the metaverse reaching mass adoption is having, you know, there's no need to have an app store, right? It's just going to be the web browser with links. Um, but to do that, we need more people, all the listeners to build in like things like WebXR. Don't just focus on things like Unreal 5 that's not like realistic. Um, and yeah, that's kind of my, I guess. And, and uh, at this stage, are you, at this stage, are you going to be agnostic in your web browser um, choices? Meaning if I choose not to use Chrome and I want to use Firefox or I want to use Safari or I want to use something even more obscure, will you support uh, all or are you just putting your focus on the so, big commercial ones? 
we don't have any limitation other than you know WebGL2. I mean, eventually we're going to be pushing people to WebGPU. I think WebGPU is going to do, I mean, I'm very glad Chrome shipped it mm -hmm. and hopefully that yeah. kind of whips Safari a bit. Um, yeah. You know, browsers to me, um, I think Chrome adds a lot to the browser that's not strictly speaking necessary for this type of content. Um, and I think there are a lot of valid concerns about fingerprinting of browsers in the metaverse. So I think there will be people that want to not use necessarily just Chrome and logging with Google to the metaverse because we already see that in the web. And like every time I'm on a website where it's like my name pops up in the top right and it says continue with Google. And mm -hmm. it's like, how that's kind of undesired. But to answer your question, you know, we do support, um, you know, Wolvic, we're a sponsor of um, as a browser on Quest and a number of other platforms. Um, you know, we're a very big believer in not just having a Chrome monolith. You know, Safari, I hate. Um, I hate it with a passion, but we support it. Um, I think every developer will ever say that like Safari is the most miserable thing to ever develop for. Because, but like, <laughs> it's pretty restrictive. Yeah, yeah. Gun to your but, head. You know, that's right? Apple's. That's Apple's mentality. Is they're not building it for you, brother. They're building it no, for people not. that are totally different than you. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll we'll call this a show. Uh, much more to say about Apple and the Apple froth that is uh, overwhelming us. I said in of the course. column this week the. Um, uh, it's 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 starting to feel like uh, commentators looking at the Donald Trump motorcade. Yeah, yeah. Just got to make news. Say the Whatever same thing over not. and over. Is it launching? Maybe it's not launching. Oh, it is launching. Oh, well, if it launches, it'll be news. good. Oh, no, if it yeah, launches, it'll be bad. I mean, you can find whatever point of view you want on this. And, and of course, Tim Cook is in GQ. So Apple mm -hmm. is already kind of participating in the uh, press uh, scrum. Yeah, the froth. So, it's, it's hard yeah. to really know if Roni were here, he'd say, don't believe everything you read. Right. So well, anyway, Roni James, his... James, thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you and learning more about Meet Kai. Ted, uh, enjoy your afternoon at the Masters. I'll uh, pit, watch it on TV. I'll look for you, not on your smartphone. Oh, wow. have, <laughs> have a great weekend, everybody. See you guys. Enjoy thank it. you, everyone.